Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe. We're definitely heading into the mid-August quiet zone. So far, there's been no political summer crisis, if you exclude Europe's heat wave. And even then, in terms of lives lost, it's been far less disastrous than the 2003 heat wave. We'll see if that lasts. With the new US sanctions against Iran starting to bite, EU efforts to protect European companies against the US move may not be enough to keep those companies from protecting their US interests and giving up on their Iranian markets. In this week's feature interview, I speak with Constance Itzel, who leads the House of European History, a new EU-funded museum in Brussels that's been attracting large numbers of visitors in an elegantly renovated building in the European district. On the podcast panel, we discuss everything from EU satellites and their role in monitoring forest fires, through to the Swedish police shooting dead an intellectually disabled man who had a toy gun with him. Now it's time to hear from Constance Itzel. Joining me now on the podcast is Dr. Constance Itzel, who is the director of the European House of History here in Brussels. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. So the reason I thought it would be a great conversation is that you've made a real impact in the last couple of years in Brussels. It's a new museum that helps tell the story of both the European Union and the Europeans that make up the Union. And it's in a beautiful building just between where we're talking right now and the European Parliament. So maybe start by telling us a little bit about how the museum came about and how many years work it was to to get both the organization and the physical space ready for the exhibitions that you now show. Yes, so uh, the idea is already from 2007, but actual preparations started on the building site in 2009 and from the, the content and museum team in 2011, because we actually brought the team together from across Europe historians, museum experts. We didn't want to rely on a Belgian team only, so it took some time to publish the vacancy, go through the European channels and get the team together. And then we worked for six and a half years to get the exhibitions ready. Wow. And was this really driven by some of the European commissioners or MEPs? Or did it come from a bottom-up grassroots approach where people said, we really need to have this story told? It is an initiative by the European Parliament, although I have to say there were earlier grassroots suggestions going along similar lines because actually you have to imagine that there's 
tens of thousands of museums in Europe, but there's no museum about Europe itself, or there was none. And uh, most museums look at history from a national, regional or local perspective. And here the idea was to add a European perspective. So to complement this European museum landscape by a history museum, which looks at what Europeans share and what divides them as well. I can sympathize very much with that challenge. When we were setting up Politico, it was really an answer to a lot of those questions mm. where people said, well, why don't we have a European public space and a public debate? And when most people think about the EU, they come at it from a national perspective exactly. or the mm. one issue that they really care about. And it was really lacking that kind of broader overview. So we're pretty yes. much on a similar plane of thinking, I would say. Yes. And if I may say so, we can see this also when we when we were collecting objects for the exhibition. Finding objects, for example, about EU history is not easy because museums are not collecting them. So they fall. There's a gap there. And uh, museums do collect from a national perspective. Mm -hmm. mm. Now, how contemporary do you get with the exhibitions? You know, it's obvious that you would tell the story of World War II and how the EU was constructed. And I guess now that we've been through a decade where it feels like crisis after crisis, mm. and maybe that's the media and the digital mm. revolution that mm. pushes that impression onto us. But you look at things like financial crisis, migration, Brexit, you know, they'd obviously be great material for yes. a museum. Yeah. Do you get that contemporary and recent in, in what you're displaying and talking about? Yes, we show that, um, but we also show how the, the lines of development, so to say. We don't show Brexit as an isolated event. You can draw a line in our exhibition from the accession of the UK to the European communities, to the Brexit, or the same for the financial crisis. We speak about the birth of the Economic and Monetary Union, the criticisms that existed at the time about the way it was constructed, and you can then find some things back in the audio station about the financial crisis. The same for migration. We do speak about the way in which Europe has turned into an immigration continent, whereas it was an emigration continent mm -hmm. in the 19th century the continent from which most people left, actually, about 100 years ago. That's also something that people forget. So uh, migration here, immigration is there, but it's also part of a red thread through the exhibition showing different migration movements across the century and, and a half that we're treating. Mm -hmm. Now, the EU, like anything really, is a product of history, and it's now 100 years since the end of World War One, And that really reminds me that the European Union is first and foremost a peace project. A lot of people don't think of it like that today, but as someone who grew up in Australia, we all thought about the European Union as a way to end war and bring mm. peace to the continent. And I was wondering, what do you find in terms of those memories of the peace project? Are they slipping away and being replaced by something else? Are you working to revive that understanding of the EU as a peace operation? Yes, for sure. I think, first of all, the generations that have lived through wars in Europe, except for former Yugoslavia, of course, they are dying out. So um, memory is very short and we don't remember what our grandparents or great-grandparents have been through. And this is a pity because I think we have lost a bit of the modesty to be aware of what has happened and what could happen again. So we, we take peace for granted and we don't see that it takes continuous efforts to, first of all, build it, but also maintain it. The main exhibition that you're dealing with now talks about how history has shaped European memory. And like in our own lives, there are mm. some things we want to remember. There are some things we want to forget. It sounds a little bit like a song from the Eagles. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. How do you make people confront the mm. memories they wanted to wash away? Or how do you sort of bring them back to life when they, they didn't realize they'd forgotten them? 
Yeah, first of all, we'd like to demonstrate these mechanisms. They exist at an individual level, as you said, but they also exist at, at a collective level. Society, whatever that may be, or politicians or any kind of community may decide to remember certain things through commemorative events, for example, but also to suppress memories or to distort them, to change them. And uh, we do show this in our first exhibition space through examples where, for example, a photo was changed retroactively to delete someone who was actually there, but it was falsified. So the memory of that moment becomes distorted. And uh, we would like to show that mechanism and then also go into certain examples of suppressing or recognizing difficult pasts. Because I guess people also fall into forms of nostalgia sometimes, where they, yes, they remember the, the good parts of life, but not always the bad parts that, you know, maybe we didn't live as long as we did before. Or we, you know, we weren't as mm. good at dealing with mm. uh, disease. We didn't always have roofs over our heads, for, for example. That's true. And also what I think is important to look at, to be aware of, especially nowadays, is that sometimes memory may be consciously distorted in order to make a community feel good about their past, only remember glorious moments, for example. And we see this happening in Europe. So this is a kind of almost, I'd like to say, falsification. And we need to recognize these mechanisms. We need to see them such as we have to see fake news. Oh, yeah, it's fake memory, not fake news. Exactly. And we have to, to yeah. keep on guard for it. Now, another thing that comes through in the museum, but I would say of lots of museums as well, is the power of images mm -hmm. and, and I know for me personally mm -hmm. you know compared to looking at an object or a text an image is a lot more moving in many respects you know you really get a strong sense that Europe was in ruins twice in the last mm -hmm. hundred years when you mm -hmm. see those bombed out parts of Dresden or you see the trenches from World War One how do you make use of images like how important are they to telling the story of Europe? They are really important, although in our museum they are only part of the story because a museum is a space, so we communicate to all the senses. We even communicate to sometimes smelling or hearing or oh, wow. um, we do tactile objects. So it's not only the images, but certainly it's important to remember and important support. And if you see images from Syria nowadays, as a historian, you will immediately draw visual parallels with the images we have in our exhibitions. But So they can serve for building links with the past. But I would like to stress that authenticity is really important for us, not only as concerning images, but also objects. We research the real object or image from the time, so we can try to recreate events in this visual manner. Mm -hmm. The first time I really came down to look at the museum and engage was when Europeana came and did uh, collections of yes. items. Mm. So Europeana is this great repository mm. of uh, not always individual people's stories, but it really tells the story of ordinary Europeans and it reconstructs important parts of their family narratives, mm. their lives, and, mm. and uses that to tell the story of Europe. And so I brought some of my own family objects ah, down nice. from several mm. generations ago when my ancestors lived in Finland and also in Scotland. Uh -huh. But I thought that was fascinating mm. that you have everything from the real big picture politics down to those, those individual ordinary stories. Absolutely, and that connects people's lives to politics. I think we forget nowadays that we have sometimes lived in situations where politics have so much influenced our lives that you could die or you could lose family members. And today we're in the lucky situation that uh, where we, 
we are affected by politics, but not in the same way. Mm -hmm. And who are the sorts of people who come into the museum? I imagine lots of school groups would be, mm -hmm. be coming along. Uh, but do you get people who are here for a weekend in Brussels and they, they pop in to check it out? We're studying that at the moment. Surprisingly, we have more than half of people under 30, so quite a high number of young audiences. We do have lots of school groups also because we have special programs for them. The languages, we have looked at them, so biggest language groups are from the neighboring countries, mm -hmm. but then also Poland. And we are now, over the summer, we're evaluating, we're asking visitors where they are from, what's their socioeconomic background, because obviously we don't want to talk only to the Brussels bubble. Mm -hmm. We hope that they are tourists and they come from far away, or that in the social demographics we have people who are not part of the Brussels bubble, as I said. So we're currently evaluating where people come from, but also how they perceive the exhibition and whether the exhibition changes something in their worldviews or not. Now, one thing, just thinking out loud mm -hmm. now, multilingualism is such mm -hmm. an important part of how the EU does things, but there wouldn't be many museums that have 20, 25 languages <laughs> involved. Uh, are you one of them? Do you really include all the official yes. EU languages in the audio guides and things Yes, like in that? the tablet we have 24 languages. I can tell you it's a nightmare to do this because you have to imagine that we rely on loans from many museums across Europe and any change of object, because loans have to go back, entails a translation into 23 languages uploading on a tablet. But we would like to add extra European languages now. We're looking into the possibility of adding Chinese, Russian and mm -hmm. Arabic to cater for other visitor groups. So Very we good. don't Very want good. to stop there. And what's the reaction like? Sometimes in history, mm -hmm. it gets politicized itself or it gets turned into an ideological debate. Yes. And, you know, we have so many people who are skeptical of mm -hmm. the European project now. Mm -hmm. Have they um, joined you in the project where they feel like their story is being told? Or, or do you get a bit of a backlash of people saying this is all propaganda? Propaganda, never, actually. Some people criticize us for being too critical. They say mm -hmm. we should have told more the success story of the European Union. Mm -hmm. But I think we do that because it's all against the background of world wars, as you said. We do get criticism from those people who look for their national history, so they would mm -hmm. miss one or the other event from their national history or yeah. one or the other hero that they know from a school book. Mm -hmm. But overall, the results are overwhelmingly positive. If you look at TripAdvisor or Google reviews, you will see that they, we get lots of very, very good visitor comments, enthusiastic. So we're really happy about that. Very good. And one last question. If someone's listening and they want to pop mm -hmm. in, can they just show up and buy a ticket or should they organize that online in advance? Entrance is for free and booking is only required for groups. There we go. Thanks Dr. a lot. Dr. Itzel, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. That was Constance Itzel, Director of the House of European History. Next up, the podcast panel. And now it's time for the podcast panel, the very, very hot podcast panel. Welcome back, Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva Finn. S that's me sizzling here in <laughs> your office. Sizzling. It is all about the heat this week. I have just come back from Paris where it was 37 degrees, and I've got to say that was a nightmare because I was in a swimming competition, and you just got to look at this beautiful, cool water the whole time, and you can't swim in it 98% of the time while you're waiting for your race to happen. And that is a nightmare. Congratulations, Ryan. I hear congratulations are in order. You won two bronzes and a silver. Is that it? Yeah. That so it's worthwhile, no? To be <laughs> a, 
looking at the swimming pool, you were not really looking. What were you really doing there, Ryan, in the swimming pool to get the two bronzes and one silver? I was swimming breaststroke, <laughs> ironically. Ironically, that is the irony of all ironies. Well, you won't be breaststroking. But well, that, let's switch. You, no, you were you were at a wedding on the weekend, Albert, in Portugal. That, that was very hot too, wasn't it? Yes, I was at a wedding with no cover and a lot of Irish people, and everybody was sweating. There was actually well, a few men that opened the their shirts during of during the ceremony. But yeah, it was about forty-four degrees on one of the days during the the wedding, and then the next day it was even higher. So there were record highs. They what hose you down? Is that was that the strategy? Yeah, I was on the coast, so it wasn't so bad. But there was massive fires, and actually, a lot of resorts and beach homes and things like that were evacuated. But one thing that I wanted to mention is that this is one way that the EU can really help in humanitarian responses. So fires, floods, droughts, that kind of thing. So we've had Stylianidis tweeting about the response. And that would be Commissioner Christos Stylianidis, the emergency services humanitarian guy. Yes, exactly. And I think it's a really good example of a thumbs up for the EU because they use, for example, satellite mapping to show where the fires are spreading. Copernicus is, is the name of one of these things. They send out planes to put out the fire. They deploy staff. It's a really well, I think, received organisation within the EU of how to tackle some of, and what we are likely to experience more and more of, extreme climate events. Maybe then we're on a thumbs up mood. So let's start with a nomination of one of the other thumbs up, which is from you, Alva, around 5,500 churches in England deciding to buy renewable energy. Well, I'm going to let you introduce it, but then I'm going to come in as the bad cop. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting because it's kind of across different churches that aren't necessarily uh, from the same denominations, which is very interesting. The way that they've promoted it is that they really see climate change as a moral issue that churches should be working together against. Uh, And so they basically decided to only use renewable energy 100%, which means that they, I think it's up to something like 9 million, would be divested again from fossil fuel sources. So I nominated it as a thumbs up because I think it's an example of a sector working together and, yeah, making a moral statement against climate change and what they're going to do Mm. themselves to change it. I think it's very smart because it will hopefully be communicated to the people that they go to the church and they can do that during the masses and the events and they can follow what the churches are doing. I would agree that the church is a very powerful vessel for changing people's behavior, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I think that this has been a very low lift for these churches. I mean, they've literally done the bare minimum. They just basically called up the energy provider and said, I want to take the green tariff version. I think the in the news story about this revelation, very few of them have done anything like actually install solar panels on their own roofs. And I was alarmed by one of the statistics in the story, which said that the average church spends only 1,100 euros a year on electricity, which strikes me as either inaccurate or the church isn't used very much. And I was just like, well, you've got bigger problems here than whether you're using green energy. It's like, why do you have this big building that you don't use more often? Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, the Catholic Church, for one, has multiple billions of euro in the bank. If anyone can roll out solar panels on every building they own, 
it's the churches of Europe. But not just that, investing more in responses to climate change as well. I'd like to learn more about, you know, the Pope is always talking about climate change. Mm. It's one of his issues. And I wonder how much, for example, just an example, the Catholic Church is actually investing in kind of turning around climate change. I think, and we have to say that this is just in the UK, so it was a decision by UK churches to do something about it. But yeah, you're right, they should be putting much more money behind this because in many ways that's what we need yeah again i'm not condemning action i'm just saying there should be more action let's say uh now there is a very disturbing eu wtf we have to mention and it concerns the swedish police shooting dead a disabled man who was holding a toy gun as he ran away from home this was a man with the intellectual age of a three-year-old and From what we can tell, he wasn't shot with much warning. It's not like there was some big standoff or that he directly threatened any of the police. Of course, if there's more information that comes to light, we'll be happy to share it. But I was a little bit shocked because if that happened in the United States, Europeans would feel very happy being outraged about it. If it happened to someone from some other category, whether it was a person of colour or some other um, background, there'd obviously also be some outrage there. And yeah, I just find it amazing that that story would virtually sink without a trace. Yeah, I find it outrageous as well. Um, People with intellectual disabilities are often completely overlooked by society. You know, they're invisible. But even if it was, you know, a person of colour that this had happened to in Europe, people would be up in arms. And I think in general, when we're talking about equality, we need to have a more intersectional approach. Equality applies to men, women, people of colour, people of disabilities, older people, younger people. You know, we need to be seeing things across the spectrum. And it's just very unfortunate that people with any type of disability are actually much more likely, sometimes up to three times more likely to experience abuse, neglect, violence, exploitation. So I'm not surprised by this at all. I am surprised equally by what you said as well, that why aren't people up in arms about this? It's because people with disabilities are invisible to many people in our societies. It's very unfortunate. Does it disrupt our view of Sweden as this happy, perfect place, Lena? I was just thinking of that because they have just got one of the... They are always high-ranked in terms of happiness, in terms of uh, their social and community policies, and it is really shocking to see these uh, kind of news. And there's a follow-up on what has been communicated in the media. I think it will really shake in it just slightly, uh, not a lot, the image and the reputation of, of Sweden. I think Sweden's human rights record used to be absolutely amazing and it's deteriorated on a number of levels because of some of the challenges that we're facing across Europe. And one of those challenges is security. And I wonder, is this a response to a growing fear climate within the police? And is that a response to terrorism? And we just really need to be training police to be less trigger happy in Mm. this environment because they really are expected to do a lot by the public. And then, yeah, things like this happen and you wonder, do they really have training at all? Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to resolve this one uh, on a podcast panel. But Alva, Lena, thanks so much for coming back as always. Yeah, and I hope it's cooler next week. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't joined our community formally, go to politico.eu forward slash registration, tick the EU Confidential box and we'll send you the episode each week. And if you've got a minute, take a moment to rate, review or subscribe to the podcast wherever you found it and it will also come to you. Thanks so much. As ever, podcasting is a team effort, so big thanks to Nicole Fowler, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lin. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 